0: We are in a study of uh, Deuteronomy, and uh, I say that specifically for our guests here. You're probably thinking, great, we jumped into Deuteronomy 20? What in the world? That's not the most flowery of passages, but we are walking through Deuteronomy. For our guests and visitors here this morning, we're walking through Deuteronomy, not necessarily verse by verse, but chapter by chapter. And, And we live in a world where when we come to passages like this, we, we, we admittedly have a hard time with them. We've been, we live in a world that, partly because we live in a world that loves to talk about the love of God, but, but we, don't flip the, we don't flip the stage, we don't flip the switch to see the other side. You see, because when, when God or even when we, when we love the lovable, the Bible says even the world does that. But when we love that which is unlovable, that's a different kind of love. You see, when we love our friends and we love people that are good, that's one kind of love. But when we love our enemies, that's different. And see, the love of God has to be balanced with the judgment of God. The love of God is certainly one wonderful aspect of our great God. But there's another side of His, that's His holiness and righteousness. And He has to judge sin. He has to. His character demands it. His righteousness, holiness, purity, all of that. You have, we have to be quick to look at all the attributes of God together and not just pick out one or the other. See, because these, these are the passages, these are the passages that the world, that those who are opposed to our great God will come to and they will try to make our God out to be some unloving, unmerciful uh, they'll try to equate him to to genocide. They'll equate him to unjust murderings. They'll they'll equate him to a lot of nasty things that simply aren't true. And so I want to I want to take today to help us understand um, what's going on here, obviously in, in this passage. But help us to understand why would it take place, so that we can give a defense for the hope that is in us. First Peter three five says but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to, for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness, do it with respect. I, I want us to be able to defend. When we come against enemies, when, when, when people malign or impugn our great God because of passage is like this, I want us to be able to defend and explain what he was doing. Because again, I, I, I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions. My flesh, when I come to this and I think, really, the women and the children? But, but I'll get to that. I, I want us to be able to defend God is sovereign, He is good, He is merciful, He is just, and we got to understand this, He hates sin. He doesn't just dislike sin. He hates sin. He must judge sin. He has to. And how all that balances out is beyond me. I, I, I have a hard time being loving and merciful I, with our, just our kids. I will be overly loving or overly unmerciful. I will overly judge or I'll be overly too lenient. It's never a good balance. And I'm pretty sure I'm probably not the only parent that struggles with that. I'll make a mountain. Hey, there you go. One one other her. Jason. Jason struggles with it. I'll make a mountain out of a molehill, molehill and then Karen will look at me and say, You're not going to do anything about that? I thought that was funny. She's like, that ain't funny. You know, my, my daughter one time real quick, I remember, I, you know, anyone who has multiple kids realizes the joy of parenting is I have one kid that's over here and one kid, they're different. And I can look at Bradley and just look at him and he knows that was dumb. Don't do it again. Message is communicated. I got a daughter, on the other hand, that'll look at you and say, no, 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 that wasn't dumb. You look dumb. I threatened to spank her one time. I said, Sarah, if you do that again, I'm going to spank your bottom. She said, you talking about this bottom? This one right here. Now, my parents were sitting on the couch with me, and I wanted to laugh. I knew in my heart that I was supposed to spank her, but it was funny. It was funny. It just the way she did it. It was funny. Now, being a good dad, I would have judged her. I would have spanked her. Being the bad sinner that I am, I found it comical. And the the problem probably is what I really was hurt most about is, is my genes that would cause her to say that. Not my wife's. It's my genes. My genes did that my genes. So I want us to be able to defend how it is that a God that we supposedly know would do such a strong thing as what we see here. And, and, and that's what I want to do today. That's what I'm going to attempt to do today. So jump in with me. You have your handouts. You have some fill-ins there. Hopefully at the end of today, we will have a better understanding and can defend. The first thing we've got to understand when we come to this patches is, is this. God was judging sin. When he commanded that the Canaanites be destroyed, you've got to keep in mind he was judging sin. Sin. Do not be afraid of them, as Lee read, for the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt is with you. It is God who is doing this, not man. You flip back to Deuteronomy 9.5, and, and I'm just going to read it when I get there for the sake of time. Nine five, he says this, it is not for your righteousness or for your uprightness of heart that you are going to possess their land. Listen. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is judging sin. He's not picking on the Canaanites. He's not doing any. He is not doing anything outside of His character. He's judging their sin. And when we come to passages in like 2016, and it says, "and don't leave anything alive that breathes," our natural question is this: How bad could they have been to warrant that? If we're honest, the thought that men and, and not only men, most of our wives and heads say, "Yeah, the men need to be judged," but the women, the children, really, the women and the children, everything that breathes, the animals. If, if we're honest, our flesh, our flesh kind of balks at that. Our, our flesh has a hard time receiving that. We, we have a hard time saying, we say, well, kind of jump to their defense. Of, man, how bad could they have been? How bad was it that would warrant that? And the problem is, the problem is, we're sinners. And we're sinners looking at other Sinners. And we're wondering just how bad was it? See, because we don't even see our own sin as that bad. I will always, always, always underestimate my sinfulness and overestimate my goodness. Always. Always. And see, when we come to passages like this, that's the lens that we're looking at it through. We're not looking through it through the lens of a holy God. We're not looking at it through the lens of a perfect God who one day would put His own Son who was perfectly sinless on a cross to die for sin. We're not looking at it through those lenses. And as sinners, we have no idea of how offensive and terrible and disgusting our sin is toward a holy God. That's the problem. See, God hates sin. And if we were honest, our distaste for sin probably doesn't rival hate. We may, be, we may not like it. We may like, not like what it brings about in our life. We may not like the consequences. But hate? That's a strong word. And God hates sin. And we don't hate sin the way that God hates sin because, again, we see ourselves as basically good. We, we, we see ourselves as good people. And unfortunately, and when you read Romans and you look at Isaiah 64, 6, and you look at what the biblical truth is, God doesn't see us as good. He sees us as sinners. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Even the righteous deeds, now, righteous deeds not good deeds, the righteous deeds that we've done are but filthy rags in comparison to God's righteousness and holiness and perfection. The, the best I've got to offer God is filthy rags rags compared to his righteousness and because of our sinfulness when we see passages like this that talk about divine jealousy and divine loyalty and divine love and divine hate for sin they begin to look like overreactions it begins to look like genocide it begins to look and revi- and, and rival what we see with hitler doing to the jews and, and the world will come to these passages and say, oh, well, that's just a picture of a needy God. Needy God. He's just jealous and, and he's just needy. That's not true. They'll, they'll say, oh, he's inferior. That's why he was so intimidated. Not true. Even, even his commands to flee and avoid things that we see all throughout Scripture, our culture... When we come to those, because we're sinners, we see when God says, don't do this, don't do this, we say, oh, well, he's just some cosmic killjoy, as C.S. Lewis said. He's just keeping us for fun. No, 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 no. He's protecting us, and we'll get to that. He's keeping something for us. And I want to illustrate it this way, and, and because perspective makes everything. Suppose, let me ask you this, does a murderer deserve to be put to death? Some of his, I guarantee you, some of his, there's a differing opinion in this room. If, if you don't know the person who was murdered, and maybe if you know the person that did the murdering, you might, not, you might be tempted not to come down hard on them. You might be tempted not to go to the full nth of the degree of the law. You, you might level some level of sympathy. But suppose, suppose it was your mother who this person killed. Do they deserve to die? Do they deserve to be punished to the fullest extent of the law? Does your attitude change about the sin a little bit when it's your mother? See, your perspective changes. It's not just somebody who was killed, it's your mom. See, even closer to home for this passage... Suppose, it was, suppose you went through the trial and the judge levied, levied a verdict and there were thousands of protesters standing outside the courtroom protesting the fact that the judge judged that murderer and said you're sentenced to death. What, if, what would you feel when you walked out and there were thousands of protesters standing at the court saying that was an overreaction, they were a good person, they didn't need to be judged, what are you doing? See, now it hits close to home. When when we come to these passages, see, you'd say, but that wasn't your mother. Exactly. See, now it hits closer to home. When we come to these passages and we attack our great God and we question, we're questioning our God. We're questioning the goodness of our God. See, when we're the victim or when our loved one is the victim, things tend to change. We've got to understand we're not the victim of sin. God is the ultimate person who is hurt by our sin not you and not me. God is the one who is most offended by sin. God is the one who our sin is against. I I may sin against Karen and do something foolish, but ultimately, guess what? It's ultimately God who is sinned against. Karen is simply suffering the consequences of my sin. She doesn't get to call it sin. God calls it sin. And we must view what we see here from God's perspective again, because the ultimate offended party is God. We have to come <coughs> excuse me, we have to come to these passages with with the perspective of our holy great God. we We must come to these passages and try to grasp the depth and the depravity of our sin from God's perspective, the horror of sin from God's perspective. And, and, and compare that to, the, to his righteousness, to his perfection. See, our background and our theology and, and all of that make a big difference on how we see and view passages like this. If God was not behind what we see here in Canaan, then the Israelites were indeed no different than the Nazis. They were just doing stuff for sinful reasons, and their sin was showing out. But see, God was doing this. You see it very clearly in verses 1 through 4. I'm the one doing this. God is the one judging sin. Man is not judging sin on their own. God is the one judging sin. He's the one judging them here. And when you factor in, if we just look at this from our vantage point and set aside the Bible, bad news. We, we have to filter this through the doctrines of sin and the doctrines of God and who we know Him to be. And then the scenery changes and looks very different when we put on our biblical goggles. When we look through it through God's eyes. See, when, when, when people come to these passages and they accuse God of, of the likes of genocide or, or, these, or these other hate crimes and, and, and they try to compare Israel's conquest of Canaan and, and what God did here to that See, they're missing the point of the biblical doctrine of sin. They're, they're missing the characteristic of God that, that is righteous and just and holy. See, God was dealing with their sin. He was being true to, their na- to His nature, and he told them, you, "You'd sin, you die." You sin, and he's not being vindictive, he's not being a bully, he's not being selfish, he is being a righteous judge. And I want to take just a moment, there there are children of all ages in here, and most of the children leave, some stay. I'm going to try to paint a picture just for us real quick of the depth of depravity of the Canaanite sin. If you want to look at it on your own, you can. There's plenty out there. But the horror of the Canaanite sinfulness exhibited itself in the following ways. And, and again, forgive me, I'm just going to use words. And if there are kids in here that hear a word and they ask you about that word, forgive me. But I'm trying to be, I want you to get the picture though. Idolatry, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality, bestiality, the list goes on and on. If if you research the Canaanites, you'll discover the extent of their sinfulness. It will disgust you. Stuff that I won't even, I'm not even going there to mention. It's not even worthy mentioning in this pulpit beyond what I have. Driving them out wasn't simply a way to, God wasn't taking a good people's property and displacing them so that he could put his people in. He was judging sin. He was getting rid of them because of their wickedness. He was judging an evil, depraved people. They had to be judged. Everything in every part of their society, you've got to understand, everything in every part of their society was polluted and affected by the sin. From little kids up, and I'm going to leave it at that, every single person in that culture was involved. They were involved in it. They were tainted by it. Even the animals were tainted by it. And again, I'm, I'm trying to be vague here, but you get the point. That is why God said, eliminate everything that breathes, because I don't want my people coming in contact with that. It's polluted. It's awful. Don't go there. Don't go there. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't stress enough behind this pulpit how bad, how sinful the Canaanite civilization, civilization was. I mean, the details are beyond imagination. And again, God was not, I say that to say this, God was not eliminating good or innocent people. He was judging sinners. We have to keep that in mind. He was not eliminating good or innocent people. And and, and it goes back again to our view of sin and our view of God. And, and I want to give us some truths. You see them there on your handout to walk through. When we come to diff- difficult passages in the Word of God, when we come to difficult circumstances in our lives, look, we've all faced them. Many of you are facing them now. You, you want answers from me? People come want answers from me. I don't have them all the time. I'm not God. But, but here's what I do know about God, and I want you to know the same. So when you come to trials... When, when your loved one dies prematurely, when your loved one is sick prematurely, when things happen, I, sift those circumstances through these truths from the Bible. We, we don't, hear me, we don't, get to, we, don't, we don't judge God by our circumstances. We don't get to know God by sifting God through our circumstances. We know God and we sift our circumstances through that God that we know to be true. Okay, we don't we don't we don't look at this and say, oh, God must be that way. No, no. We look at that and say, knowing this about God, how do I look at that? And here's some truths that will help us sift through difficult circumstances that we don't know. And the first thing is this. God exists and is morally perfect. He's perfect. He's perfect. Because of that, here's another truth. God would not command one nation to exterminate the people of another unless he had a morally sufficient reason for doing so. Morally sufficient. According, number three, according to various Old Testament texts, God sometimes commanded the Israelites to exterminate the people of other nations, to destroy them completely. We've seen that before as we've studied Deuteronomy. Fourthly, everything that the Old Testament says about God is true. Don't come, don't start talking, well, that was Old Testament, this is New Testament, like God changed gears, like he shifted. James is very clear, there is no shifting of shadows with God. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, he may deal with us in grace a little differently than he did in the law, but guess what, his character is still the same. Fifthly, God, being perfectly holy, always has a morally sufficient reason for everything he does. He is acting in keeping with his character. He is acting in keeping with his character. Therefore, finally, God must have a morally sufficient reason for doing whatever he's doing. And in this case, exterminating the Canaanites. If we could see things through God's perspective, if we were God, we would understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. But guess what? I fall woefully short of that quality. I'm not righteous. I'm not perfectly just. I'm not perfectly anything except perfectly inconsistent. And therefore, I, don't, I have a hard time viewing what we see here. But we have to sift these through the truths that we know about God from the Bible. We must weigh everything against the biblical doctrines of God and of sin. That will explain it for us or help. When we do this, the background and the scenery and everything looks... It's like putting on different goggles. You see things differently. And, and we must believe and hold tightly to the truth that there is only one God and He deserves and is worthy of every person on this earth's worship. Just like they sang for us. There's going to come a time at the end of the day where every knee and er- it will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because He alone is worthy. Bottom line. And, and in Exodus 22 20, it says this whoever, listen to this, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. In God's character, he has to obey that, he has to follow through with his word. Justice, listen, to this, God must respond to sin. God is God. We must trust him even when and how he judges sin. The greater question is not why he did that to the Canaanites. It's probably why hasn't he done that to other countries, namely the one we live in. That's the greater question. Because if you look at what the Canaanites did, listen to me, every single thing that they were guilty of, you can find access to in America. And I'll leave it at that. Every single thing we have as a society, we've made it easy, we've promoted it, and we want you to indulge in every... I, I, read, I read a thing, the other. just one example. This was, the, this was the slogan of a website. Life is short, have an affair. 300,000 300, followers, subscribers. Life is short, have an affair. That's the world we live in. And, and that's probably the most PG of anything that's out there. And again, I didn't go searching on the website. There was a, a article that I read, and it listed some of these things. So just, I don't want your imaginations, namely my wife. Not that she. I just don't want y'all. whoa, what pa- pastor probably enjoys just like this sermon? No, I, there, there's studies. The research is out there. I mean, that's the culture we live in. The question is, why is God? And and it's grace, and we have to just. Accept that. The, the reality is this. God in His grace and His patience and His long-suffering is allowing men and women to come to know Jesus Christ so they, they will not feel the wrath of God's judgment that is coming one day. Praise be to God for that. Praise be to God for His patience in my life and in your life. Leading us. Romans 2, 4. Leading us to salvation, it sa- It says. So God was judging sin. Secondly, secondly, you've got to understand this. God was protecting Israel when he commanded the destruction of the Canaanites. And you see that in verse 18. Why are you doing all this? So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. God was protecting his people. He was concerned that, hey, if they remain in the land, they're going to draw my people away and into their evil practices. We see that today in our culture. culture. Culture, most often, culture has impacted all of us in a variety of ways, and we don't even know it. That's how deceitful it is. The most important, listen to me, We would not rate this as the most important, the biggest danger. But in God's eyes, the biggest danger to His people was His people worshiping other gods. And that's where it starts. Idolatry is where all sin, everywhere it starts. You can take no matter what sin. If you come to me, I'm just going to put my cards out on the table. If you come to me, I'm going to tell you the root of all sin is selfishness because you and I are gods. We make ourselves gods. I deserve this, I deserve that, I deserve this. I, it's you and it's me. Idolatry, that's where it all starts. And, and in that culture, you've got to understand, you wouldn't just drop religion like we do here. People just walk away from the church or this and that. That wouldn't have happened in this culture. They worshiped something. Everyone worships something. And, and we've been deceived because even in our culture, you can walk away from church, but you're still worshiping something. You're not just neutral. You're worshiping something. And we just happen to have their worship on the page. I mean, the option of of atheism, that would have been unknown then. People would serve one or more gods. If the Israelites turned away from Yahweh, they would turn to the Canaanite gods. You see, because there's no neutrality, and God knew that. You are worshiping something all the time. You're worshiping something. And God knew, unless I keep those boundaries very clear and clean... The Israelites are going to intermarry with the Canaanites. They're going to start worshiping their gods. And the whole group is going to be polluted. And guess what you see happen? Exactly what God was trying to protect. Look with me at at, at Exodus 34, verse 12. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare for you in our midst but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Do you see what he's doing? He's jealous for their loyalty. Guess what? I'm jealous for the protection of my children. So guess what I do? I put, I put boundaries around them. We fence in our backyards. We tell them, do this, don't do that. That's a good jealousy. God is jealous for his people in a good way. He's protecting them. And here's the the bottom line truth. Culture has a huge impact on the people that live in that culture. Culture has a huge influence. It is hard not to adapt cultural practices. Think about that. You go back, think about God's perspective here. Exodus 32, Moses goes to the top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments for God. Guess what Israel's doing at the bottom of the mountain? Making false gods. Just that quick. Listen to me. We don't know our own nature. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is desperately wicked beyond compare. Who can understand it? God knows our hearts. And he knows just how quickly we'll turn to sin. And so he puts strong safeguards around them. Moses took too long to come down from the temple. He comes down and they're worshiping a golden calf. And the thing is this culture impacts us. You you think about Sodom. Sodom was a Canaanite city. God destroyed Sodom. He destroyed it because of its rampant sin. It was destroyed for its wickedness. Guess what? Right after that, you see Lot's daughters committing unthinkable acts with their dad. Here's the question. Where do you think they saw that? Where do you think they learned how to do that? Where do you think they first got put in their mind what they did? They didn't make that up. They saw it in Sodom. They learned about it in their culture. They didn't just one night just dream up, hey, let's do this with our dad. They've seen it. They had witnessed it. They had been around it. And guess what? The culture impacted them. They became like their culture. You you, you can look at Leviticus 18 as, as well. 18 verse 21. God is protecting His people. He says, you shall not give any other offering to offer them to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Moloch was a Canaanite deity which, which sat like this with outstretched arms and that culture would take their infants, their babies up to age four, put them in that, that idol's hands and burn their children to death as an offering to their God. You think, well, that's, that's crazy. We'd never do that. That's not what you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Israel, Israel, because they, inter, they started intermarrying, they started worshiping, and guess what they started doing? They started offering their children, burning their own children. You can see it in Numbers, you can see it in Leviticus, you see it in Deuteronomy. All why? Because they didn't obey God and they intermarried. They began worshiping other gods, and you see where it led them. See, if our culture, if we're honest, we don't fully understand idolatry. We, we, we think that's an Old Testament deal with statutes. We, we have some neighbors who have them in their house. We, we think that's an Old Testament deal. Guess what? That, it's alive today just like it was in the Old Testament, idolatry. The worship of other gods. And God is protecting His people. He's saying whatever you worship... Whatever you worship, you're going to become like that which you worship. Idolatry is not some victimless, private, individual sin. It seeks to form a new identity in the person who is worshiping. Hear me. It wants to make you like what you're worshiping. And and we don't dabble with idolatry. We become idolatrous. And God is saying, I'm trying to protect you. And the danger danger is this, and, and hear me well on this. When we ascribe worth to a worthless things, the worthless thing then confers its worthlessness on the worshiper. That's a lot of W's in there, I get that. But hear me, whatever we worship, if it's worthless, by following it, by submitting to it, by worshiping it, the value of that object, even if it's worthless, then is conveyed on the worshiper. We become like that which we worship. And and we see it in our culture. Uh... I, my wife and I graduated, I'm, I'm going off my notes here, this is where I get in trouble. My wife and I graduated from Florida State. Guess what, Guess if I hear Jameis Winston's name and I'm accused of being a. I mean, if I hear that one more time, why? Because the worth of that which I'm connected to is connected to me because I have a degree on my wall that says Florida State University and I wear their shirt. And we've heard it before, Free Shoes University, I've heard it. I've heard it. You, th- think about it. I guarantee you this year, let's be, let's be honest and even, it wasn't fun to be a Florida Gator fan. You're terrible. <laughs> it wasn't fun. You know, Christian Hockley's wearing his Tom Brady shirt. I hope the Seahawks win 100-0. to <laughs> But I'm not telling him that. But, but my point is this, guys. Whatever we follow... Whatever we link ourselves to, I am forever linked to Florida State because I grew up there and went to school there. Whatever value they have is transferred to me. Now, think about that with idolatry. Think about that. Think about this. When I, by faith, attach myself to Christ, all the value and worth and righteousness that is Christ's becomes mine. See, God is saying, I'm your God. Uh, You want value? Worship me. And my value will be conveyed to you. But when you worship these worthless things, you're going to become worthless. We we take on the worth of whatever it is we worship. That's what he's trying to tell them. And our value and our our personhood and, and all we are becomes attached to that. That's why whoever wins the Super Bowl, there's going to be a bunch of people tomorrow that wake up miserable. Why? Because their worth is attached to worthless things like football. And I've been there. I've been there where FSU loses and it takes me weeks and weeks to get over it. I mean, that's part of the reason why I go to bed in the middle of the games. Just God protect me from going back there then my wife wakes up screaming and yelling. She's not quite as good at, a, at, at fending off idolatry as I am. I'm much, I'm much holier than she is. I'm like, Karen, it don't matter, honey. Come on. Listen, they had the one true God. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. Anyone who knows my wife knows she's the bigger part of being here than I am. So the, the, They had the one true God to worship. And he said, don't, don't, worthless, don't worship worthless things. Guys, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we have Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. By faith, he's clothed us with righteousness. Why do we fool around with these worthless things? And you can look at Judges verse 10, Judges 10, verse 6. I'll read it real quickly. Just to see the folly and where idolatry and worshiping worthless things leads. It says, Judges 10, 6. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the, gods, uh, the sons of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Do you see where idolatry led them? They, they began even, even to the point of sacrificing their own children to false gods. That's the effects of idolatry. Second Kings, again, I said Second Chronicles, I've missed Jeremiah, e- Ezekiel, all those sacrificing kids to false gods. Israel's doing that. Israel's doing that. And in, in sin and idolatry erodes everything about us. That's why God says, repent and turn to me. That's why He says in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All the stuff that you think you're getting in these false gods, you don't get, but you get them in me. And what ultimately we get in Christ is we get God. We don't get our best life now. We don't get all this other garbage that the world throws at us. What we get is God. What we need more than anything is God. We get a father. We get an intercessor. We get an advocate. We get an inheritance. We get a hope. We get a future. We get a king. We get a ruler. All that who loves us. These false gods, they can't offer that. And God was protecting his people. And, and illustrated this way. I mean, I'm a parent. When, we're, when we were moving and looking to buy a house, there are websites that we can look at to tell you who's living around you, if criminals were living around you, if there were people who had done things. Guess what? I don't care how much I like the house. If a joker living next to it has done foolish things, I ain't buying it. And you would never come to me and say, I'm a bad dad for doing that. I'm a judgmental dad. No, I'm not. I'm a good dad. And I love my son and my daughter, and I'm protecting them. And God, by doing this, is saying, I'm protecting my children. I'm protecting my people. So not only is he judging sin, he's being a loving father and protecting his people. But, but thirdly, and this is where we're going to bring it home real quick. Apart from knowing Jesus Christ is your Savior, every single person on this earth is going to be judged for their sin, just like the Canaanites were apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are going to be judged strongly and severely for your sin. you got two options. Call upon Jesus Christ by faith and trust that the judgment that God placed on Jesus Christ at the cross is sufficient and that judgment was satisfactory for your sin, or you can face judgment yourself. Revelations 20, verses 11 through 5, paint that picture. I'll read it real quick here. Revelations 20, Revelation 20, verse 11, through, says, "...then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened." which the book of life, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the dead in Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, just like the Canaanites were. That's my own comment. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name, listen, was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Because our sin is horrible when you compare it to a perfect, holy, just God who was willing to put His Son on a cross to pay for the penalty of sin. unless you think that God enjoys that, unless you think God gets joy in that, you look at, it, at uh, Ezekiel 18.23 and God says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. To the point, to the point that God was willing to sacrifice his own son. See, God wants us to get, God desires and has made a way for our sin to be forgiven, where there was no way. And to say anything else when you come to these texts is to to really, I mean, it imputes our great God. I mean, we're going to question him who's willing to put his own son on a cross for a sinner such as me? That's a wonderful father. That's a father like nobody knows. And, And what God did to the Canaanites, I don't say this with joy and God's word doesn't say this with joy. It was a precursor to what we will see at the end of time. God is going to judge every single person for their sin. I mean, in seven twenty-two, you say you want to know that God's not unjust. In seven twenty-two, God judged Israel because of their sin and let Assyria whoop their behind. In five eighty, that was the Northern Kingdom. In five eighty-six, God did the same thing to the Southern Kingdom because they happened to have a few more good judges, and it took them a little longer. God come in and judge them. He, he's not—he's not partial. He's impartial with his judgment. And the Canaanites were a picture of the grand narrative of this. That God must judge sin and that leads us to the cross. You look at the cross, the cross says this, God has to judge sin even at the cost of his own son. He has to judge sin. And and, and that's how awful sin was, that even his own son would die. That he would turn his back. That all the wrath of God due sin would fall on Christ. And at the cross... Christ bore the judgment that our sin demanded. Christ bore the judgment. He took the wrath that our sin demanded. That's why Romans 8.1 should say, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ took the condemnation. But here's here's the natural thing. Without Christ, there is just condemnation. There is condemnation. You don't get a free pass. God didn't just sweep it under the rug. He put it on His Son... And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have not by faith accepted that payment as payment for your sin, you will bear the penalty of your own sin and you will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity to pay the wages for your sin. I don't take joy in saying that, but if you don't know the bad news, you don't appreciate the good news. There is judgment. Nobody nobody in here deserves grace and yet God has shown much grace. Even as believers, you look at 1 Corinthians 3, you look at 1 Corinthians 4, the the beam seat judgment, we're going to be judged on how we steward God's grace. What did we as believers, it's not get my fire insurance and go live like I want to live. We are going to be judged by fire. Everything we've done and built upon our life is going to be judged by fire. Whatever burns up, burns up. Whatever's left, we'll enter into eternity with. And 1 Corinthians 3 says that some will enter into heaven as with the smell of smoke on them. Whole life burned up. Don't, don't be a Christian whose whole life gets burned up. And, and if you're not a Christian, don't walk out of here and, and thinking that you'll bear the weight of your own sin. When Jesus Christ has made a way for you not to bear the weight of your own sin. By faith, admit you're a sinner. Tell God, thank you for putting your sin on Jesus Christ and admit that He is the way, the truth, and the life. When we stand before God and He says, why should you get into heaven if the answer is anything for you but Jesus Christ and the cross and His death, burial, and resurrection, wrong answer. Take that by faith. And believer, live by faith. Steward God's grace well. Treasure God's grace in all of your life.